0: So as we move into this sermon, this is going to be the final message in this series that we've been going through, 1st and 2 Peter, uh, 34th message out of this series that we've been going through since April. Uh, But it is our final Advent message as well. And our Advent theme this year was called His Promise. And so I mentioned earlier that Advent is means arrival or coming. And it's a time where we look back on when God stepped into His creation, sent His Son Jesus to be among us. And it causes us to ponder and look toward His second Advent when He will return again. And the reason this year that I felt like it was on my heart that the theme surrounding Advent would be His promise it's just where we are. In our culture today, in our world, we are we are in a time and have been now for a couple of years of upheaval. And it has impacted us all differently. But I think the frustration and anxiety of what we've experienced in the last couple of years is real for everyone. What we're frustrated about. What we're worried about is different. And I, I've, I've learned that in the last couple of years in just my own life, but in talking to other people in the church. But we're all feeling the sting of living in a fallen world and living in a world that is going through a pandemic. And we're all clinging to Something. It is our nature to seek out hope. It is our nature to want to be happy. It is our desire for things to be what we would call normal. And so we're all clinging to something in order to try to find that hope and to feel that normalcy. And What I felt like would be appropriate for us this year in Advent is to remind ourselves that the one sure thing for us to cling to, the one sure thing for us to find hope in and normalcy in is the promises of God and the promises that He has made us that are not changed, not undone by what happens in the world, by a pandemic, by frustration, or by anxiety. But when I say that, and when I talk about God's promises, because we know His Word is filled with promises, but in but specifically, what promise are we thinking about? What promise are we considering at Advent that we're holding on to even in times of great calamity? And the reality is, if we didn't have the pandemic, we would all still be wrestling with something. And... For some of us in this room over the last couple of years, the pandemic has not been the primary wrestling that we've had. We've had other tragedies and other issues that we've went through. So what are the promises that we're holding on to and thinking about, even at maybe specifically Christmas or Advent? So if you're a note taker and you have one of the worship guides this morning, I want to start in the handout with this, God's promise to His people. This is the specific thing that I am thinking of, from God's Word that I want us to hold on to during this Advent season. God's promise to His people. I have seen your suffering and heard your cries. I have come down to deliver you, to be with you even in your failures, and to give you rest. That promise is lifted directly from the Old Testament. If you have a Bible this morning and you want to turn to Exodus, I want to show you some of the context surrounding this promise. If you do not have a Bible this morning, let me say what we we try to remind you about all the time, is that we have Bibles that are to be given as gifts. We have them here. If you do not have a Bible, we have a good study Bible. We would love to gift you with one. If you will see me or see Nick before you leave today, We would love to give you a copy. Even if you just maybe don't have a good study Bible and you would like one, we have them for that purpose. So we'd love for that to be a a gift from our church to you. But in Exodus 1, let me give the context of where this promise comes from. You have God's people, Israel, that have been chosen from all the people over all the earth. And because of a famine in the world in that time, the people of Israel, small in number, 70 to 75 of them find themselves in a foreign land, Egypt. And they are there actually receiving safety and help from the famine. And they are welcomed there. And and they are honored guests among the people of Egypt. But when you get to Exodus and in chapter 1, we are told that the people of Israel who were small in number, according to verse 7, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew increasingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Which means God's hand was on His people even though they did not have their own land or their own nation. But in verse 8, we, we skip ahead roughly 400 years that the people of Israel are in Egypt and they are growing in number. And we are told that a problem has occurred. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, who was one of the patriarchs of Israel. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh stone cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service the more that the people of Egypt oppressed God's people, the more God blessed them and they multiplied. And it got to the point to where Egypt was bearing down hard. The people of Israel were their slaves and they made their lives bitter. And if we continued to read, we would find out that Pharaoh began in order to stop this multiplication of the people in Egypt. He ordered that their children be murdered. First as infants... If they were born, they were to be slaughtered, and when that didn't work, then he was he ordered that if any were seen, they would just be thrown into the Nile and killed. And while this passes very quickly in scripture, while we're just reading through there, if we were to stop and ponder, we would think about the suffering and the cries that these people must have been praying and giving to God, that their lives were bitter and harsh, and their very families were threatened with destruction and their children being murdered. And so you get to Exodus 3, and we're introduced to a man named Moses, who God has raised up as a mediator for His people, although He doesn't know it yet. And in this incredible picture in Exodus 3, God comes to Moses and in the form of a fire in a bush. And the fire doesn't consume this bush, but miraculously, it's the glory of God resting on it. And He speaks to Moses and in verse 6 He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And in verse 7, God says this to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt, And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God makes this promise to His people through Moses. I have heard your cry, I know your suffering, and I have come down to deliver you. And I'm not just going to deliver you from the oppression that you are under, but I'm going to take you to a place of rest. And so God does deliver them. He brings them through deliverance from the people of Egypt through a series of plagues. Most of us are probably familiar with that. Pharaoh would say yes I will let these people go, and then he would change his mind. And it happened over and over and over again until the final plague in which an angel passed through Egypt, killing the firstborn in every home, unless that home had the blood of a lamb that had been killed smeared over its doorpost. And if the angel of death found the blood of this spotless lamb smeared over the doorpost, the angel would pass over that home and no death would come to it. And all of God's people had been instructed to do just that. And so Pharaoh lets the people go. And they began this wilderness journey in which God takes them into the wilderness to lead them to this place A land that will be their own, flowing with milk and honey. A good land. But the people rebel frequently. And they want to turn back. And at one point, they decide that they don't trust Moses and they don't trust God. And so they decide to create their own God. And they form an idol. And they begin to bow and worship to that idol. And God, in His justice and His anger... says that He will let these people to their own devices and they will suffer death and destruction because of their rebellion, but Moses prays for them and intercedes on their behalf. And God, just as He had planned to do, promises that He will pardon these people and that His presence will go with them. And in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, He says, in spite of their rebellion, He will go with them and He will give them rest. And that word rest is throughout the Old Testament. My question to you in your handout is, what is rest? What is this promise that God is giving His people? That even when they fell, even in their rebellion, that He will give them rest. What is that? In the Old Testament, there's two types of rest. One you're probably familiar with. It's called Sabbath rest. It's the idea that in the Old Testament, there was one day a week that the people of God didn't work. Because God created the world in six days and He rested on the seventh day. And so the people of God, as His people, they would work six days and then rest on the Sabbath. But the rest that God is speaking of here, the rest that we see in the Old Testament is it's a little bit of a different kind of rest. It is a rest of victory and a rest of security. That when God says, I will give you rest, He is saying to His people, I will give you victory over all of your enemies, and I will give you security from all the nations that would do you harm. It's a promise. That they can have their own land and their own home, and that they can rest in it. Knowing that God has delivered them from oppression, and that God is remaining faithful to them and protecting them from any enemy that might arise. But what the Old Testament shows us is that the vast majority of this generation of people that was delivered out of Egypt, the vast majority of them that heard this promise that God will go with you and God will give you rest, they never actually entered this land. Because when they got to the edge of it, Israel sent 12 spies into the land to spy it out. Makes sense? Before we go into this land and try and conquer it as God has told us to, we should check it out. Make sure it's a good land. See what we're up against. And these spies return to the people of Israel, the congregation. And they say to them, it is indeed a good land. As a matter of fact, here's some of the fruit of the land. But there's a big problem. The people that are in this land are big and scary and they're larger than we are, more numerous than we are. We can never defeat them. And only two of those 12 spies said, God is with us and He will give us this land. The other 10 said, let's turn back. And they they spoke to the people and they convinced them God wouldn't keep His promise. And these two men pleaded with them, No, listen, He will keep His promise. But the majority of Israel said no. And they decided to elect a leader. You can read about this in Numbers 13 and 14 if you want to look at it later. But they decide to elect leaders and go back to Egypt. After all that they had seen God do, they say, it would be better, we'll just go back to Egypt, we'll ask for their forgiveness, and we'll just say, can you let us come back and be slaves again? Our lives were bitter and they were hard and you were killing our children, but we're going to be destroyed if we go into this land. And God called that rebellion because they didn't believe. After all they had seen, after all God had done for them, all the miracles that they saw in the wilderness, all the plagues, the miracles of the plagues that they saw in Egypt, they didn't believe God. And so God said that that generation of people would not enter the land they would not have the promise. Only Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who told God's people that they could believe Him, only they would get to see the land. And so the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died off and the new generation had grown up that believed God and believed His promises. And it was that generation that took the land. Now God was with them even in their wandering. He protected them. He loved them. He was with them and among them. But the rest was not theirs. And so this new generation of people led by Joshua conquered the land. And when you get to Joshua chapter 23, the major work has been done. The land has been conquered. And Joshua 23 opens this way a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. Joshua was old and well advanced in years, and he summoned all of Israel and its elders and its heads and its judges and officers to himself. So we get to this picture in Joshua 23 where God has done exactly what He promised that He would do. And He has delivered the land and given His people rest. And Joshua was one of the leaders that got to see that. He got to see the victory and the security given to God's people. But he knows his time is short. That he has advanced in years and he has this understanding that it is his time to step into eternity. And so He calls the people of Israel to Himself on two different occasions actually in Joshua 22, 23, and 24 because He cares about these people. He has led them for years and years and years and He knows that He will soon not be with them and not be able to speak with them anymore. And He is longing to know that they're going to be okay. And he's not concerned about whether or not God will take care of them. He knows that God will. But what he is concerned about is whether or not the people will stay true to God. And so he gives them a a series of farewell addresses. And in your notes, Joshua 23, his charge to his people could be summarized this way. Remember the Lord's faithfulness and cling to Him. I'll read you parts of Joshua 23. He says to them, You have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Therefore, verse 6, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the Law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. And He goes on to tell them that if they do not cling to God and if they turn to the gods, the false gods of these nations, that they will perish. And in that, he says to them in verse 14, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has spelled of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All of it has come to pass. So what Joshua does in these addresses is he reminds the people how faithful God has been. He has not failed you one time Joshua says, Not one thing that he promised to you has he failed to do. So remembering that, be faithful to him. Remembering all that he has done, cling to him. Hold fast to him. Be joined to him. What does that look like? And if we were to read some of the surrounding instructions, I think three things that we could say in your notes that it means one, be devoted to his word. Be devoted to His Word. You cling to God by being devoted to what He has said. His Word is good and it is right. And it it doesn't, your flesh doesn't always agree with it. It doesn't always seem like the best thing, but faith says it is, that the God of the universe knows what is best. So be devoted to what He has said to you. Know His Word and do it. And secondly, walk in His ways. Don't walk in the way that you want to walk. Don't do the things that you want to do. Rather, walk in the ways of God because His ways are good and they are right. And then, third, serve Him alone with sincere hearts. Strive to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and serve Him alone. Don't serve other gods. Don't cling to other things for hope and security. Cling only to Him. Serve Him alone. This was the cry of Joshua to the people. Please do this. I won't be here anymore to lead you. Please cling to God. And what we see is that they do for a while. But if you flip the page from Joshua 24, you come to the next book of the Old Testament called Judges. And I will just read you a summary of what Judges says throughout the entire book. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for their fathers. And they abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. The Lord raised up judges, which were leaders, to serve them, yet they did not listen. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He saved them from the hand of their enemies, for He was moved to pity by their grieving because of those who afflicted them. But when the judges died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And this one sentence that permeates all of Judges... Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Within just a few generations, everything falls apart. When the Bible says that they no longer knew the Lord, I don't think that that means that they didn't have a record of what God had done. Or that they didn't know the stories of what He had done. I believe it meant they did not seek to know and serve God. The things Joshua had warned them about, they did. And listen, we live in this world, if you're a believer, you know what it's like to live in a culture that presents many, many good things in which you can find pleasure, in which you can find happiness. And the Bible calls us to be light to that world and to live a different way. Not because we're better but because we're the people of God. And because we're supposed to live in a way that reflects His Word and His ways. But we know that we get pulled into the culture. And while we don't have idols that we put on our mantles and bow down to, we do have idols. We have things that we cling to. Things that we seek our hope in and our happiness in not just as gifts from God, but as a God that we will give our whole life toward. And this is what happened to the people of God in Judges. They didn't heed Joshua's words and their rest didn't last. The Bible actually says when they were filled with the prosperity that God had gave them, they forgot it. When they were filled with the prosperity God gave them, they forgot Him. All the things sometimes we ask God for. God, if you would just do this, if you would just give me this, if you would expand my career, if you would expand my finances, if you would expand my health, if you would give me this prosperity, God, I'm praying for, what if God knows if I gave you that prosperity, you'd walk away? What if God withholds some things from us because He loves us, because He keeps us clinging to Him, It's the deadly danger of making the gospel about prosperity. Because sometimes prosperity will kill our souls. So just as in Egypt, these people of God find themselves afflicted, suffering under their enemies, and they would cry out to God to be saved, and God would save them. And as soon as He did, they'd go back to their enemies. And this continued throughout the Old Testament until... The people of God lost their land. And they were scattered throughout the nations. They lost their home. They lost their rest. They lost their victory. They lost their security. And so here's the question for us in a very short summary of that biblical history of God's people. Here's the question for us at Advent, at Christmas, when we talk about His promises. Did God fail to keep His Word? And the answer to that that unfolds for us throughout all of the Bible is no. And two two reasons for that. First, God did exactly what He said He would do. In the Old Testament, before Christ, there was a, a covenant, an agreement between God and His people. And the covenant was this. You obey Me, and I will bless you. That was the agreement. But as we have seen, the people of God could not obey Him. They couldn't obey Him from their hearts. They couldn't maintain faithfulness to Him. So what happens? God could have written them off and said, You broke the agreement, therefore you're no longer My people. And I will let destruction come upon you with finality. But God didn't do that because the other part of this promise is this beautiful reality that everything we just talked about, everything we just talked about of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and being freed by His power from plagues, by plagues, through plagues so that they could leave Egypt, their wilderness wandering and coming to this land of rest and promise, every bit of it was simply a shadow of something greater to come. It was a physical shadow of a spiritual reality. The people of Israel being enslaved in Egypt was a picture. A picture that you and I, every person who has ever, ever lived have been enslaved, not in a foreign land, but to sin. That ever since the garden, ever since the fall of man, when the first people that God ever put on the earth rebelled against Him, because they didn't trust Him and they didn't believe they could rest in Him, we have dealt with what the Bible calls depravity. Souls that long to sin. I've said it to you many times. Sin is not something you fall into when you reach a certain age. Sin is something that every person struggles with from the time they're a toddler. All of us in this room have had kids. We know what it's like to have a small child that you tell them not to do something, and they do it anyway, and look at you and laugh. Because not only are they geared towards sin, they think it's funny. And every one of us have lived that way our whole lives. We are drawn to that which is opposed to God. And we're enslaved to it. And there is no way we can save ourselves out of that. The only way that we can be saved from sin and its eventual outcome, which is death, is if there is blood smeared over our lives that causes death to pass us over. That whole imagery of God having the people of Israel bring in a spotless lamb, kill it, and put its blood over their family's house was a picture that every one of us in this room and every person you know needs the blood of a spotless sacrifice to cover their lives so that death will eventually pass us over. Not physically, but in eternity. And our deliverance comes by the spotless Lamb that is Jesus. God's own firstborn. God who sent the plague of death sent His Son To take on that plague. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That is what Advent is about. Advent is the reminder that God sent Jesus to us. That He would live... On this earth, a perfect life that we could not live, but He would die a sinner's death. Why would a man who lived perfectly die like a sinner? Because he wasn't dying for his own wrongdoing. He was dying for ours. He took our place. And anyone who looks to Him and anyone who believes in Him, His sacrifice is placed over our lives. And death will pass us over. In eternity, when we stand before God, we will have life if our faith has been placed in Christ. So the message of Christmas in your outline is although His people's rest did not last, God's promise has not failed. It finds its resounding fulfillment in Jesus. Did God fail? No. Did His promises fail? No. How do we know? Because of Jesus. It was always His plan. Every image from the Old Testament pointed to this spiritual reality. Every picture from the Old Testament pointed to Christ. So that in the New Testament, the Bible could say that every promise of God finds its yes and its amen in Jesus. And then you get to Luke chapter 1, passages that we've already read. Where in Luke chapter 1, the Messiah is about to be born. And prophetically, it is spoken, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up salvation for us. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Jesus has come to save us, to deliver us from our enemies. Not political oppression, not yet. Not oppression that's caused by living in a fallen world, not yet but by the oppression of sin. Of that those things in your life that separate you from God that you cannot get away from no matter how hard you try. And some of you perhaps growing up in the South, you have enough religion about you to know that you shouldn't do those things. And so you go before God and say, I won't do this again. I promise. And then after a time of prosperity, you fall right back into it. And that becomes the cycle of your life. And at times, you don't even care. Other times of your life, maybe you get afraid of what eternity might look like and you do care. And so you make these promises to God I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better. And the whole time, God is saying, You can't bring yourself out of Egypt, you can't bring yourself out of slavery. I've sent Jesus to do that. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus, as an adult, spoke these words, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest of God, the rest from God, comes through Jesus. In your notes, rest from Jesus. What does that look like? It means victory over sin and security in His grace. You have victory over sin and you are secured in His grace. Victory over sin doesn't mean that you will not sin anymore as a Christian. It does mean that God gives you the power to see many small victories over sin in your life, but it points you to the ultimate victory over sin, which means that the consequences of that sin is no longer yours. Because God is a just judge. And He will not condemn two people for the same crime. And so if Jesus has suffered on your behalf, you will never suffer in eternity for your sin. It is a big word the Bible calls justification. It means that when you yield your life to Christ and you place your faith in Him, God delivers you from the consequences of your sin and in that moment He declares you eternally not guilty of everything that you have done wrong and everything that you will do. You have victory over sin, but you're also secure in His grace because He promises that He's going to do something in your life. He's going to change something. He is going to begin to work out this justification in you. It brings us to a second big Bible word, sanctification. It means that He's going to grow you in salvation. And so yes, you will still sin. But when you do, He gives you tools like confession and repentance that you can go before Him and be cleansed and have your relationship with Him knowing that it's Steady. Always. You are secure in His grace. So all of the rest of the Old Testament, even the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament, is yours in Christ. You can rest from your work. You do not have to labor to make God happy with you. You do not have to do things in order to have God's kindness or His favor. You don't have to earn that. Honestly, we don't know love that way. It is not a love we've ever experienced from someone else. We have truly never experienced completely unconditional love from anyone on earth. We may have come close to it. And if you have, praise God for that. Because it's a picture of His love for you. But ultimately, the love that we know is the type of love that goes out from us often in response to what someone else is doing. We use that language, by the way. Right? I love my car. I love this food. What do we mean by that? It means it does good to me. And that's why I love it. And what happens when you go to the restaurant and they don't give you great food? Or what happens when your car breaks down? you fall out of love because the love was never unconditional. We are secure in grace because the love that God gives us in Christ is completely unconditional. You don't earn it. God isn't going to fall out of love with you because you do something wrong because your salvation was always based on His mercy. And your continued salvation is based on His grace. And so you rest in that. You rest in that. On your darkest day, in the darkest moments, where you've really fouled everything up, you can trust, God loves me. And I will run to Him in confession because I know He cares about me. And that brings us to what the New Testament teaches us and ultimately to Peter's, charged to God's people. I laughed when Kevin said earlier, I can't wait to see how David handles this text because there's like four sermons. And I said to Josh, I'm actually not even preaching the majority of the message out of that, that, that text. So, But I do want to cover what Peter said. Because Peter is just like Joshua. He's writing this letter at the end of his life. He's already said to the people that are getting this letter in his day, that he knows that the end of his life is near and he cares about the church he cares about these people just like Joshua did the people that he was leading and so what does Peter charge them with remember the lord's faithfulness and cling to jesus it's the same charge it's the same charge Remember all that God has done for you. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter said, I am writing to stir you up by way of reminder. He writes to remind us all of the good things that God has done. And then in this verse 17 and 18, in particular verse 18 in chapter 3, is probably the thesis of the entire letter. It's the key point of his letter. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why Peter's writing. That's what he wants us to do as Christians. He said in verse 17, Know beforehand that there are going to be many people who will speak lawless, error-filled things. They will twist Scripture. He calls what Paul was writing Scripture, which gives us internal testimony that all of the New Testament is God's Word. We talked about that in a previous sermon. And he says, don't listen to people who would speak to you twisted things. Don't listen to them, because they will carry you away by their lawlessness. They will say to you, this is where hope is found in the midst of a pandemic. This is where true life is. Be happy. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Serve yourself. Look out for yourself. And they will make that sound good and they may even be able to twist the Bible to show you passages that seem to teach that. And Peter says, don't listen to them. Don't be carried away with that error. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Grace comes from God as His kindness and favor. We can grow in that, Peter says. We can grow walking in God's favor and His kindness and His mercy." And we can grow in knowing Him. Knowledge is not just head knowledge. It is growing in knowing Christ and knowing God. So we cling to Jesus because we find our true rest in Him. Jesus is the greater land of Canaan. He's the greater promised land. He's the place that God has taken us to. Delivering us from sin and placing us, what the Bible calls, in Christ And the evidence that you have this rest is not apathy. It's not living however you want to live. It's knowing how faithful God has been that He did not even withhold His Son from you. He sent His Son to be murdered on your behalf. And knowing that, be faithful to Him. That's what Peter says. Beloved, since you're waiting for the return of Christ, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's verse 14. What does it mean to cling to Jesus? I certainly think all the things that we saw earlier that Joshua talked about, they're still valid. We should be devoted to God's word. We should walk in his ways. We should serve Him along with sincerity of heart. But now, we do those things by pursuing, not those things individually, but by pursuing a person. Jesus. We rest in Jesus, in your notes, by striving for His life through reliance. When Peter says, since you're waiting for all of this, and church, if you know Christ, you're waiting on His return. Since you're waiting on this, since you're waiting for that day where there will be new heavens and new earth and there will be no more sin and no more of all of the trouble and calamity that goes with sin, be diligent. Be diligent that He would find you when He returns without spot or blemish and at peace. Without spot or blemish is the same language that is given in the Old Testament to sacrificial lambs. It is imagery that says, do your best, strive to be a sacrifice to God with your life. Live for Him. Moral purity. Not because that saves you, but because of what He has done for you. And strive to be at peace. I think we can say at rest, resting in Christ, at peace with God because of Jesus. And all of this we do because of reliance. In this church, we describe the reason we exist in three statements. We are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. We're to love our neighbors the way Christ has loved us. And we're to try to make disciples. And at the core of those three things, we have this one word, rely. And it's not just something that we put in imagery, because we wanted a, a cool name for a prayer service that we do. Rely It's what we want this church to be about, that in every thing, in every single circumstance of our life, in every day we rely on Jesus. I laughed when Josh was telling his story earlier. And I would say to Sam that I also pitched a temper tantrum this week. Just one it well it one that I remember, it was a big one. And um I, I've told you guys before that in my advanced age, the sin that I have most dealt with has been anger. When I was a younger man, younger man, it was a different sin that I struggled with. Different type of addiction. I've talked about that too. My older age though, it's, it's anger. There, there are times where I'm just so frustrated at a situation and I am so angry and I sin out of that anger often with my tone and the volume of my voice and things that I say. And so this week I, I was in a situation just like that with an extended family member and it wasn't pretty. And, and I, I share with you with that with you for a couple of reasons. One, whenever that happens, I always hear this voice that says, man, if your church could see you, so, I figure I'll just tell you about it and that'll kind of remove that. But then the other, the other reason is this because I'm driving. This happened in my car, and there's only one other person that even knew about it. Um, and it had this extended family. Allison didn't even know about this, I haven't told her about it. But I'm driving, and, and I've had this moment where I have just really lost control of my emotions. And I felt like God asked me a diagnostic question. What are you so angry about? We talked here before about anger. Anger is, anger is when you love something so much that you, you raise up with all of your strength to defend it. And so we've talked about like when you're really angry, you can ask yourself, what am I defending in this moment? And so when I asked myself that question, the answer was I was defending myself. Because there was something I thought someone should be doing and they weren't doing it and I knew how it would impact me and my family if they didn't stop. The second diagnostic question God asked me was what would it look like if you relied on me totally in this situation? What would it look like if you completely trusted me to take care of what they're doing and change their heart? Or even if I didn't, To take care of the ramifications of what that would be. What would it look like? And my answer was it would look the opposite of what I just did. (laughs) So, my question to you today is what are you struggling with sin wise? What would it look like if you totally relied on God in that situation? What are you struggling with anxiety wise? What are you frustrated about? And what would it look like if you totally and completely trusted God? That is how we strive for the life of Christ. And that's what Peter is telling us to do. To be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish in that peace. And the other thing I think Peter is charging us with is to embrace this time. Embrace this time that we have. Look in verse 15. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's saying there is a delay that we're living in right now. This delay before Christ returns. And here's how you should consider that delay. You should consider it as salvation for you. What does that mean? I think two things. One, if you are in this room today and you do not know rest in Jesus if you do not know what it means to truly yield your life to Him, the fact that He has not yet returned or the fact that you have not yet been taken from this earth to stand before Him means you are living in His patience to be saved. To find rest in Him and to yield your life to Him and to grab a hold of His promises and cling to Him for hope in this world. That's what Hebrews 4 teaches us. That some people have not entered into rest in the Old Testament. They didn't enter into that promised land because of their unbelief. And some of us have not entered into the rest offered in Christ because we don't have faith. So have faith. Yield your life to Him and receive that rest. Secondly, he is writing this to the church. So what does it mean that the church should count his delay as salvation? And I think two things. One, it's an opportunity for you to grow in the salvation you've been giving. It is an opportunity for you to grow in knowing God. Church, whatever you want for your life, whatever you hope happens, if you want to be married one day and have kids, if you have certain dreams for your career, if you have certain hopes for your monetary situation, if you have certain visions and things that you want to accomplish, great. We talked about last week, God gives us taste of heavenly things. But church... The number one goal of your life is should be to grow in knowing God. Walking with Him and Him walking with you so that one day when you stand before Him, you don't stand before a stranger. You stand before someone that you have stayed up late to be with. You stand before someone that you have woken up early to be with. You stand before someone that you have walked with through tribulation and good times. You Stand before someone that you have read what He has to say to you. He has spoken to you. That you grow in knowing Him. And one day when you stand before Him and you see Christ, you'll see Him for the first time, but it won't be the first time you know Him. And the other part of that, church, is we are living in a time where we can still evangelize where we can still share Jesus with other people. And it is our call to do that. Understand, evangelism to the world is offensive. It's offensive to say there's only one truth and one way to God. It is offensive because the world says don't don't put your beliefs on me. You live your life, let me live mine. It is offensive to those who don't yet know Jesus, the thought of evangelism. But for us, it's love. For us, it is a call to love people, to share with them the light of Christ as the only place they can really find rest because we see people who are struggling They're trying to find happiness anywhere and everywhere they can. They are trying to find peace and hope in things that we know ultimately will fail them. And it is love for us to say, there is a place where you can find rest that will last for all of eternity. And it's not not a piece of property. It's not a thing. It is a person and His name is Jesus. I'm going to ask Sam and the worship team to come up. And as they do, I want to reread lyrics that we sang together earlier. He who is mighty has done a great thing. He has taken on flesh and conquered death's sting. He has shattered the darkness and He has lifted our shame. Holy is His name. We're going to worship together to end. But I want to ask you, I want to plead with you, just because we're wrapping up, don't disengage. The question before us at Advent, the message of Christmas, God has come to deliver us and to give us rest. The question before us today is do we have rest in Jesus? Are we resting in Him and His sacrifice? I say this to you all the time. I'm not asking if you're religious. Don't really care about that beyond taking care of widows and orphans as the Bible tells us to. I'm not asking you if you grew up in church. I'm not asking you if you believe in the existence of a God. I'm not even asking you if you believe the story of the gospel. I am asking, have you yielded your life to rest in Jesus? And if not, I would say to you, that whether you're in this room or you're watching this on recording later, God has ordained that you would hear that question and that you would enter His rest. Do not harden your heart if you're hearing His voice, the Bible says. But run to Him. What does that look like? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a formula. It's not a sentence. It's asking Him to give you rest and yielding your life to follow Him. And if that is you and if you are in need of that, the only thing I ask of you is that before you leave here today, would you share that with someone? Would you come talk to me? Talk to Nick? And would you just let us know, God stirred something in me today and I don't know what it is, I just want to talk through it and we'll make time to talk. If you're in this room and you're a believer, are you resting in Jesus? Are you relying on Him? What would it look like in your life? How radically different would your anxieties and frustrations and sins be if you were relying on Him for everything? Would you pray about that today? Would you seek to rely on Him for everything? I want to ask our prayer partners to come up. Those who are going to be praying this morning. And I think either... Kevin or Nick, probably need one of you guys to pray if you can. These individuals are here for one reason, to pray for you. About anything you need. Maybe about something we've talked about this morning. Maybe not. Maybe a relationship issue or physical healing. Anything that you would like to have someone else praying for you about. They're here for you to do that. You walk up to them and they will discreetly and quietly pray for you. As we worship, Father, I ask that You who have promised us deliverance and You have promised that Your Word in our lives will not return void. God, would You please do Your work here today? You don't need me to direct that. I just ask, God, that You would change our hearts. Whatever the need we have here, God, would You please work it for us? Would You please release us from slavery? Would You please help us to rely on You? And would You please change our lives? We need You, God. You have come to deliver us. That's the message of Christmas. God, would You please work that deliverance for our good? In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.